The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and SJ Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA. Today's guest is a very, very special one that I'm extremely excited about. The one and only Hoya from Madball, one of the all-time best hardcore bands. Like, no matter what you think about hardcore, if you don't acknowledge them as one of the very greatest hardcore bands of all time, then you can just... I don't know, go throw your phone in a lake or something because you are out of your mind. (laughs) Very excited to have him on the show and just kind of talk about, you know, their history as a band, the impact that they've made and how he feels about that. Looking back now over the past, you know, I guess it's been about 30 years or something of history as a band, looking back at that and seeing how that's affected the hardcore scene, you know, what it looks like, what it feels like looking at all the copycats, here in America or in Europe, how the scene has changed over the years, how they as human beings have changed over the years. Really good conversation that I'm very excited about. Make sure you check out his podcast called The Smoking Word Podcast, which you can check out at soundtalentmedia.com. It's the same podcast network that this show is on. So that's pretty cool to be, you know, network label mates with Hoya. He's had guests like Scott Vogel of Terror, Tim Williams from VOD, Billy from Biohazard, Toby Morse, Will Shepler and Maddie Henderson from Madball. Great show with 15 episodes in the can if you're a hardcore junkie. Also, if you want to support the show, there are a few things that you can do if you are so inclined. Number one is to share it on social media. It helps us a lot. Just share it on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Orcut, Friendster, Bebo. We don't care. Just tag me, tag the guest, tag Deanna. It really helps us a lot. Second thing you can do if you really like us is to buy some merch, which there's a link to that in the description, or to support us on Patreon. It's because of the folks on Patreon that we're able to do this show at all. That's how we are able to pay Deanna our amazing producer and editor who makes the whole thing happen. So thank you very much to everybody who supports over there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the show. Please welcome the legendary Hoya to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. I appreciate it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. You know that I got, um, I, I would run into all your stuff randomly, you know, online, you know, because I always... You know, you got you got the best. Um, what do you call it? Um, titles that get, <laughs> yeah, my, that get you interested. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah, clickbait caught this whale over here a couple of times. But um, no, but yeah, now nah, you got some uh cool shit and uh, and a lot of cool angles that um 
we would talk about on van rides, a lot of similar stuff. So it made it interesting. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, no, definitely, man. Going to be on. Well, I try to, you know, I try to get uh, people in with some kind of clickbait title or some big band that they know about, and then maybe sneak in something about irate in there, you know, so that, uh, <laughs> you know, I can get, uh, I can get the obscure stuff in there too. Yeah, no, for sure. You got, you got good content period. So clickbait just sucks when there's nothing behind it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. You, you know, you keep it fresh, so that's good. I back it. I back it. Well, I appreciate it. Well, speaking of van rides, obviously nobody's doing any touring this year, and I would imagine for you guys, Europe is probably a big part of your year, which is not happening. How are you guys dealing with all that? Yeah, no, it, it fucking really sucks. You know, um, we're a hardcore band. You know what I mean? Um, all the the pictures of the big festivals and thirty thousand people, fit, you know, that's all cool and you know it feels good for your ego and all that. But um, those fifty thousand people weren't there to see Madball; they were there to see Iron Maiden headlining that <laughs> night or something, you know. And 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 there's despite what people think, there's no royalties in hardcore music. Well, at least not for this hardcore band. So um, all our money is from touring, you know, playing shows, you know. I say joking, but it's like the Partridge family of hardcore. Like, we go out there, you know, it's our family business. We got to be in front of people to sell merch and hit the stages to make money. Literally, the, the, the lockdown happened, I, I want to say it was on a Wednesday. And that Thursday, we were supposed to fly out to, the, do, to start a tour that we always do every year, the Rebellion Tour in Europe, with us, Knock Loose, um, Harm's Way, a bunch of bands that, you know, it was... It was selling really good. It was going to be a good, you know, new school, older school and a good mix, you know, bag. And this whole thing just dropped. So trying to stay busy hustling with merch and stuff. But, yeah, it's really tough, man, for anybody, you know, for bands in the underground and anybody who, who supports themselves mainly off this thing. You know what I mean? Because none of us had... um this is our main jobs. Yeah, and you still don't really have any idea when you're going to be able to get back on the road again. It's some scary shit. Like, um, you know, the fantasy was next summer, but the way things look, you know, um, I don't get into politics or whatever, but the yeah. fact is, election, once we know what, whoever wins or what, we're going to get Which, a by the way, it was award. last night, and we still don't know who won. Yeah, we're going to get a clearer um, 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 view of how the world is going to open up no matter who wins, I think, you know, in the yep. next week, two weeks and stuff like that. And man, I don't know, man, I'm about to, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to play a, a drive through <laughs> at McDonald's, forget a, a movie theater drive through. I'm right. willing to do whatever it takes to get in front of people. Well, people are doing those live streams and stuff and that's cool. But I think for a hardcore band, that just doesn't really work. Yeah. You know how that is. It's, you know, that's the thing about hardcore. Like, um, it's hard to digest when you're just listening to it, but when you're in the moment or you could see it visually, it's a game changer. There's nothing like it in the world. No other music scene. I love metal. I love this. I love that. But the fact is there's nothing like a hardcore show. Two things happen to you when you go to your first hardcore show, you either get scared of death and want no part of it or you're hooked or maybe both. Period. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of it. You know, if you, like a scary movie, you know, it's like a, an endorphin rush. There's nothing like a hardcore show, you know, it's just bottom line. You know, if you like, like it or not, the vibe in that room is something you got to, your soul got to be present in the room to get the full experience. 
But it is what it is. You know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to keep one, you know, the band alive and the, and the movement alive, you know, whatever it takes. People are really nervous about how we're gonna, what's going to happen with venues and whatever. And I said, well, the one thing I do know is the spirit of this hardcore shit comes from the whole punk rock shit means when nobody wanted us, we had to find our own way, places and, and ways to put our music out and our lifestyle. So it might just turn into us doing these garages again and that type sure. of shit. You know, like like um the old raves used to do, you know, in abandoned buildings and, you know, word of mouth. The underground, like from the punk and the whole hardcore thing, we're like the cockroaches, you know. We <laughs> learn how to survive, but it sucks, you know. I mean, it really sucks, you know, because we have children now and now we got to alter our whole, you know, lifestyle. Yeah, it's a little different, you know, eating shit when you're 22 is one thing versus as an adult. Well, I have yeah. a ton of questions for you, which I probably won't be able to get through all of them. But the first thing I kind of wanted to ask about was, to me, and, and I know that you probably can't agree with this, but to me, I think of Madball as like the template for like modern hardcore. You know, obviously Agnostic Front was first and kind of started that. But to me, like Madball is the band that I remember people my age back in the 90s kind of latching on to and never being like, okay, that's what hardcore it's either you were either a madball band or an earth crisis band yeah <laughs> and uh, I, I wonder what is it about madball do you think that kind of caught on and made so many people inspired to do that kind of template i mean part of it was we had a lot of history with having former members of agnostic front we had you know our our, our life our bloodline was definitely you could trace visually trace it still to that original era so you got the people with the whole nostalgia and, you know, hardcore is all about nostalgia also. But I think um, with me and Freddie also at the time being younger and more connected to the streets and not just, you know, the meaning um, 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 a crazy lifestyle, but just what the, the youth was into, you know, our, you know, we had that swag that came into play. You know, um, I use an example like for me, that band was Raw Deal, you know, Killing Time, where they would connected to the old school but they weren't the old school punk rock or the mohawk right but right. they had a swag that was still cool but they weren't trying to be um rap core or something you know right. it just again i think it's a, a part of it is um the areas we came from being queens new york which has a lot of history with new york hardcore it's basically a melting pot where it's not the suburbs but it had that feel of you know, you had a good mix of suburban white kids, suburban black kids, you know, um, um, Latin kids, a, a mishmash. And being very close to downtown New York, you had the whole classic feel. And, you know, I, I think it just leaked out. And I think, you know, a big part of it was me and Freddie being younger. And, you know, even within the band, it was kind of like a joke. We used to be like all oh, these old guys, you know, right. they're wearing combat, you know, combat boots and we're wearing Nikes. That's one thing that stood out to me because I think Freddie's maybe a year older than me or something like that. But, you know, I remember seeing him in that famous picture, you know, where he's like 12 or whatever with Agnostic Front. And, you know, I was like, bare, I was maybe 14 at the time or something like that. And I was like, whoa, this guy's like my age. Yeah. It's crazy because actually, the, I mean, the video might actually be online. I'm not sure. But the first time he was on stage, he was seven years old. Which was, it's insane because on top of that, well, I would never tell him in person to gas his head <laughs> off, but he killed it. I think he did um, 
one of these crazy songs, you know, What's With You, some crazy yeah. facts. And he nailed it at seven years old. And it's, it's ridiculous. He was born into it, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Roger took care of him for a long time. And Roger would bring him along, you know, and a lot of those early days, you know, he got, Freddie got to be around a lot of the classics and see a lot of classic shows just by default because of Roger. And, you know, it's embedded, you know, it's embedded in him, you know, and he always loved hip hop and other types of music. And again, I guess us being 19, 20, 18, 17 at that time, and all the other guys were in their mid 20s, early 30s. And Matt, Matt Bell always had that kind of groove, too, that I think was really special and made that kind of catch on with a lot of people. Yeah, you know, a big part of that was, again, um, me and Freddie are big hip-hop lovers, you know what I mean? And um, Matty Henderson loved hip-hop, and the other guys were more classic rock, and you know, which we all love all that stuff also. But a big part of it was, my concept of music was, um, I always loved um, a big pocket and a groove. And I used to say, and my mentality was, if you're not going to mosh or stage dive to me for my music, I want to at least have you bob your head to it. And if you bob your head to it, I got you, you yeah. know, kind of thing. But I never wanted to be a rap core band, even if there wasn't any at the time. I just wanted that influ that feel I got when I heard the classics. I feel like all, like, maybe not all, but a lot of the New York bands back then just sort of had that flavor yeah. to them even if they weren't consciously trying to draw from rap i feel like if you just grew up there at that time you couldn't really help it or even a lot of the latin music and stuff like that that your parents listened to or something exactly you know a big um a big part of, of living in new york city is the car driving by and you hear the music bumping it could be freestyle music you know club music which we all grew up with you know you'll hear um, um, um hip-hop passing by and you, you'll hear that in the low east side where and again People um, forget that um, hip-hop was the same thing what hardcore was. It was music by kids that adults didn't understand or wanted no part of back then. So everybody gathered at the same place, Lower Manhattan. That's where you had all the artists, all the, the musicians. If it was hip-hop, punk rock, experimental. And, you know, people cross-pollinate. Part of my remedy in the early days was, we were talking about technology earlier, was like the song Set It Off is one of the, probably the first song I wrote for Madball. And a big part of it was before GarageBand and before Pro Tools and all that shit, I would set up my guitar amp under my television and I was always watching rap videos. So I, I learned how to place it in an in a, in a angle where I could hear the drums off the rap video and I could play to it. So I actually wrote that song to an Eric B and Rakim song. Oh, I that no makes stuff. sense. You know, so I would hear it and I would have a drum beat to play uh -huh. with. And then I would just go to the studio and say, give it a hip hop beat. And then they and Willie would give his interpretation of what I was shooting for. He, he had such a cool style. Yeah. You know, of exactly that. It's like hardcore drumming, but it has that little, just a little bit of that hip hop kind of groove to it. So you, you wrote Set It Off. And I think my understanding is that you have written a lot of the kind of, you know, bigger riffs for Madball over the years. Yeah, you know, um, in, in reality, it was like this. When Matty Henderson was in the band, it was 50-50, but not, not consciously. It was never meant to be like that. It just, that was the magic with me and Matty Henderson. Like, for every one whole song he came up, I had a whole song. 
if I had a half a song, he's like, yo, I got something to finish that. And it ended up being, and it was never a competition either, but it was kind of like we would feed off each other. You know, I learned all my, my chops off of him. You know, I would try to be like, how would Maddie Henderson do this? Mm-hmm. And I think he liked my vibe and he used to be like, what would Hoyer do? And we would meet in the middle, but, um, you know, Maddie was there for the first couple of albums only. And then after that, I took on the, you know, I got better with my craft and I'm, I'm more of a songwriter than a technician on the bass. I like, you know, building songs and full projects, not just specializing in, you know, playing because I was never like a technical guy. I'm more about a feel. I don't think people necessarily know this about you, you know, that you've written a lot of those like really iconic songs and riffs. And I have to ask, like, how does it feel, you know, knowing that there's kind of like a whole genre of hardcore that I would say is inspired by like set it off probably would be like the most definitive song of that genre. It's cool as fuck because um, to me, just being in with Madball, even the band, my whole thing was, I just want when people speak about hardcore, when we're long gone, that people could throw us in there, our naming with the with the kings of it, the old school guys, and be like, oh yeah, yo, Madball represented. You know, I wanted to make the old guys proud, the young guys proud, and um, I, I never really thought about it being a, a, a you know a, a game changer for some people, which is dope. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad people you know, respect it like that because, you know, we respect what we do also a lot, like for the movement, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we, we we really care not just what Madball does, but the whole scene does, you know what I mean? And and I'm psyched to be a brick in that house, you know what I mean? Well, I think you guys really did bring hardcore to the world. I mean, again, obviously there's AF and other bands and stuff, but I mean, you guys were really the ones consistently going all over the world for you know, fucking 25 years now. We're those guys that feel like every other dude, we're just dead trying to do our thing. But one thing I can say about us proudly is we busted our ass. When we were lucky to start touring when there was just a handful of hardcore bands being able to tour overseas. You know, the early days, it was um, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Agnostic Front, you know, maybe Cro-Mags and sick of it all, you know. Right. Yeah, Sick of All is definitely part of that conversation, too, yeah. Exactly, and those are all, like, the goats to a lot of people, kind of. And then there was us, <laughs> you know, but we came in. We also started playing very um, consistently when the scene was dead in New York. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of places, it was on a really on a down. We didn't get together to say, let's bring back the scene. We just got together and started writing music and said, yo, we got to work with what we got. You know, we like what we're doing. Let's work it. And then an opportunity popped up. We worked it. And, you know, um, we just never gave up. And we were guys that um, we were young guys. And um, we were getting a lot of opportunities to be able to tour the world. And we took it. You know what I mean? And then, um, but we busted our ass. Yeah. You know, we had to do a lot because, you know, we were a hardcore band. So we also didn't get a lot of respect. Was it weird? Like there's, you know, that famous Dynamo video from 94, 95, whatever. It's so weird seeing like a hardcore band play on that giant stage in front of so many people. Is it hard to play those kind of stages? Let me tell you, that show specifically is the worst show we've ever played (laughs) in our existence. And also the show that put Madball on the map on a global scale. Um, I'll give you a couple of things that happened just to show how we weren't 
prepared for that. You know, before that fest on that festival, there was about a hundred thousand people one stage. Before that, the festivals we played was a parking lot for seven hundred people. You know what I mean? Like right. in the middle of nowhere. So we had we had no idea. If you look at the video, every all you new bands out there, if you want to see what not to do or what could happen at, at your worst show, peep that whole set. Well, I don't think it's bad. I mean, you know, it's I'm sure it's not your best performance ever, but it feels like a hardcore band. We could throw garbage down a, a flight of stairs and it could sound like a hardcore band. But <laughs> True. A big part of it was one, you could even see my, my guitar, my bass chord. I had to bring the microphone halfway in the middle of the stage because my <laughs> chord didn't reach the end. Number two, Freddie at one point kicks Maddie's pedals out and it starts feedbacking in the middle of a song, 100,000 people, and you see, ee, ee. another point, Freddie falls off the stage. He slips off, falls right. off. It was like a story high. But it was still like nobody had felt like that. That was an audience that had just never seen that vibe before. Yeah. And that's what's important. Like, you can fuck up the little things. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the spirit, you know, we played up with, with our balls. You know what I mean? You know, we played um, with our hearts every time we played. And um, um, I think the audience got that real rawness. And that was the, 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 the selling point of that set. Like, yo, these guys, you know, it's funny. Um, all these bands had these banners the size of a building, you know, like three stories high. Right. And we had what I call the Mad Ball handkerchief. It, it was a probably like, like, you know, three feet long. And we had two friends run out like so. It looks pretty big at CBs or Gilman. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And um, it, it, it definitely put us on the map, you know, and people, I think, like you said, um, the, 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 the attitude and the rawness was still new to those type of audiences. And you could tell, you know, a lot of people um, took to it, you know, which we're glad, you know, because to this day, for uh, the older the older demographics, that's the show that people say, yo, first time I saw Madball, Dynamo 95. Well, one of the other big changes that I've noticed about hardcore and specifically like New York hardcore is you remember like in the 80s or 90s or even in the 2000s, like none of the media, like the, you know, whatever the equivalent of like Vice and all that shit is would touch hardcore or the fucking 10 foot pole. Like, and if they ever did talk about Madball, the Chromags, it was like, oh, look at these meathead jock assholes. And then suddenly, maybe about what, 2011 or 12 or something like that, they all started to love New York hardcore. I'm like, all right, well, you're about 25 years late, but. What, what I think a big part of that was people forget, you know, the Metallica's, the Slayer, all those guys wouldn't be them without hardcore influences because it was all, you know, extreme music was very, you know, you know, it, it was still new and people were trying to find craziness wherever they could find it from the discharge, the agnostic fronts, the GBHs. You know, if it was Celtic Frost, you know, a Metallica, Exodus, you know, all those guys were influenced by it. But I think even they stopped giving props, not that they had to for their whole existence, but, you know, they, 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 they explained their love for the underground music in the early days. And then as yeah. they got bigger, it was no longer important. Which I get. I mean, you're not going to go like on fucking MTV and talk about your favorite GBH record. Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, they had to be more relatable to the, their audiences that they were hitting. And I think now what happened was the later generation of the big boys, if it's the machine heads and the fear factories and, 
you know, all these other bands. Now when they talk, you know, and they mention hardcore, you could kind of trace it easier with the internet and, and, and YouTube and all that stuff. I think it's easier to do your research now than mm -hmm. back then. You know, back then you saw, what was that shirt Metallica yeah. had with the, oh, Misfits, what is Misfits? And then you would have to like really hunt. And then I think now it made it a little bit more accessible and a big part of it. A lot of hardcore kids are now the big dogs doing podcasts and doing video shows and they're lawyers for bands. They're right. A&Rs and record companies. They're running record companies. They're videographers. They work on TV. And I think that all brought, you know, the, the whole movement again, a little bit more into people's eyes and stuff. It's just funny to see them like almost overnight go from ignoring slash hating it to like all of a sudden loving it. Like, well, I mean, I guess better late than never, but whatever. The best part is also, um, I think the agnostic front, that documentary, you know, yep. that, that kind of really hit a milestone for where hardcore hit in the mainstream and who better than AF to, to have that spot, you know, no, no better representation than them. You know what I mean? Yep. And I think the second or third episode of my podcast is an interview with the director, Ian. So anybody listening who wants to check that out, uh, go back and listen to that one. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, 
You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. One thing you mentioned earlier, which I wanted to ask about, is like the New York scene kind of slowing down in like the late 90s or so. It seemed like, you know, in the late 80s to mid 90s or so, it was on fire. Like I was reading zines like In Effect and stuff and discovering like new bands all the time. And then it seemed like it really slowed down. And I still don't really know why. You know, I think a big part of it was legal issues with venues not wanting, you know, people started suing people for getting staged over on. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that started happening a lot. Like, you know, sure, there's accidents, very serious accidents that happen, but they also happen at Pearl Jam concerts. That's right. Like, that, that somebody, uh, did they get killed or hurt really bad at that biohazard show and there's, like, a life of agony? That's right, yeah. A broken neck, paralyzed, and stuff like that. But then what started happening, these small venues were starting to get sued. And right. then they didn't want to deal with the insurance or couldn't afford it. So they were better off just axing it. And if there's no shows, then the scene doesn't exist. And yeah, I gotcha. Especially, you know, this is the way I break it down with hardcore and the special thing about hardcore. And metal, I love metal. But metal has a first grade and a graduating class. The first grade is the battle of the bands. And the <laughs> graduating classes, you get that you meet that promoter who has you open for one of the big boys. And hardcore... You got the garage, then you got the, the, the house party, then you got the little club, and then, you know, and you got different tiers up to the big show, the big, you know, Irving Plaza show and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And um, that took out all those middle tiers, which made it hard for something that doesn't get a lot of eyes on in a lot of mainstream media. It doesn't, it doesn't give us enough oxygen to survive. Yeah, so, you know, the the bands like you guys and Sick of It All and everyone else that was already established were still doing fine because they could tour nationally. They didn't need to play locally that exactly. much. But that's when, like, the smaller bands just kind of stopped coming out. Exactly. What fun is being in a hardcore band if you can't play a show? Yeah, Even right. If, if it's for your friends, you know, that's kind of the reason. You start by playing for your friends, then those friends bring their friends, and then you get your first taste of somebody you don't know, and you're like, wow, people like this. Let me keep playing. And you had all these little clubs and venues, um, which we don't have no more. Well, right. I'm in South Florida now, but New York in general, it's like that. You know what I mean? It's, I think the legal stuff had a lot to do with it. I think that's probably everywhere, though, because, yeah, you know, I mean, shows, I mean, I, I never went to a New York show in the 80s, but from what everyone tells me is pretty wild. I mean, me going to shows in the nineties, even like in Cleveland and stuff, it got pretty wild. And they're just, that just wouldn't be acceptable anymore. That level of like just craziness, which is probably okay. I mean, it's a little, you know, I wouldn't want my kids going to one of those shows. No, no, of course it's definitely crazy. You know, I won't lie and say that we weren't a part of the problem at <laughs> one point many years ago, but we also grew up. And when we started playing, we learned, you know, you can't shit where you eat. 
and the, the craziness that we loved, we just happened to feed off the craziness more than others. What do you mean by that you're part of the problem? No, like, you know, we were living a, a, a crazy lifestyle. Like, you know, people were talking about being tough guys. And not that we were trying to live up to our songs. We were just wild, the kids. Well, people always bring it to you also, if they think that's who you are. Yeah, exactly. It's who we were, you know, and a big part of it was young suburban kids. And we would play places where these bouncers think, that, oh, because I'm a big Spanish bouncer, big black bouncer, a big jockhead, you know, Italian yeah. meathead bouncer. I'm all, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get one of these little um, skinny, straight edge kids from the yeah. suburbs and I'm, I'm going to bully them around. We wouldn't let that shit happen. And it wasn't always on some freedom fighters shit. I'm not going to try to <laughs> sound like an angel. But the problem was, if you had a problem with us, we didn't just write a song about it. You would probably feel it. And then at a certain point, you probably just realize, you know, we just can't keep doing that. Yes. We had our share with legal problems. You know, Freddie had his stints with, uh, you know, he, he, he did a little bit of time. He got in a fight or something? I don't remember what that was. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was a firearm that was taken out. And it was a little gotcha. bit crazy. And, um, you know, but that was also a wake-up call. And that was like 98 or something like that? Exactly. We, you know, we actually officially broke up for a minute there was after the hold it down record right the again the scene and hardcore wasn't getting a lot of a lot of traction it was hard to stay alive as it was and it seemed like the forces were against us at that time not ju our, just because of our lifestyle but like you know band members wanting to leave you know the you know we were living those craziness around us everybody having own personal issues it kind of all fell at, on us at once and me and Freddie had decided one thing we never want to do with Madball is run the name through the mud. Like right. some of these bands do. They, they, they bring up a variation of themselves just to try to milk a paycheck. That shit is whack and we will never do that. And we said, you know what? We, we're proud guys and we love what we do and we love where we came from. And we say, yo, we better off ending it than, you know, watering it down. Yeah. Then long story short, when he got out of jail, he did a, about eight months stint or whatever it was. He came back and was like, yo, let's do this. You know what I mean? And then we decided if we're going to do this shit, we're going to go full fledged. We're going to do it right and work it. Well, it seems like after that, you guys became a much more positive band, which I really appreciated. Yeah. I mean, I can really see a, a difference there. Like uh, to me, like the Ben there done that, like that song to me is like the turning point yeah. of like the tone of the band. Yeah, you know, again, like stuff like that, like people going to jail, you know, we grew up and now it's no longer high school problems. We're getting into more adult problems and seeing life for what it is. You know, we started seeing, yo, you know what we, you know, yeah, we might have fun getting into a fight, but we love laughing more. We love hanging with our families more. We love having all our friends healthy and having, you know, a, a place we could get together and break bread at. And we started realizing that, you know, again, growing up, we grew up in this shit. You know, we all were little kids when we started. And the, the thing is with that, the world was looking at us go through puberty. Yeah, I, I think people may, may not realize how young you guys were on those first few records. Yeah, you know, early on, you know, I was 19, Freddie was 15, 16, you know what I mean? We were like that, you know, I, I turned 20 in Stigma's house. <laughs> and I remember that, like, he would tell me, you're not a teenager no more, kid. He <laughs> told me that all day. 
And to this day, in my late 40s, I remember that. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, um, and I, we still feel like young kids because of this, what we do. You know, we, it's the fountain of youth, you know, mentally and f- physically, too. You know, there's nothing like it. But, um, you know, we learned and we documented it on records subconsciously there's a part of your fan base i don't know if it's still like this but definitely 15 20 years ago a part of your fan base that like i think really got off on the ignorant stuff and really wanted you guys to like you know be thugs and then you know kind of emulated what the cartoonish version of what they thought you guys were yes how do you feel seeing that you know one i thought it was corny yeah not that that you feel that way because being young uh, comes with being angry and being having, you know, you know, you have that angst, that that thing in you that you got to release. That's why we got attracted to this music. I would know that, you know, we were the same dudes off of stage. We didn't just bring it because we were in a band and we were on stage and people were looking at us. And then we would see people that never were like that, but they would want to come to a Mabel show to punch somebody in the face. Right. But yet they never lived like that in their own lives. Right. And then we started, then we started, you know, we're meatheads, too. So it took us a little bit longer than for it to sink in these heads. But then, you know, we, we started enjoying and, and, and respecting what we do for a living more and more that it started bothering us when every time we played, there would be a fight. And then the club would get shut down and we're like... And that that would be the place where people would go to fight. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was uh, there was years that it was a given. I don't care where it was. It was like, oh, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. It was a given. As a matter of fact, we would do this for many years. The minute a fight would break out, we would stop, then we would play ready to fight. <laughs> I remember seeing Hatebreed in 2009 and being shocked that there wasn't a fight. Exactly. I was like, whoa, I want an entire Hatebreed set without a fight? This is yeah, different. That, that's like unheard of. <laughs> yeah. Like the Hatebreed meatheads, you got the hardcore meatheads. I love the meatheads, but yeah. it, even the meatheads got to be. They had to, you know, they had to use their brains in a way to know, like, yo, remember the people that you're around, they're on the same wavelength. You're all in, the, you all came to the same temple to experience what you're experiencing. You know, everybody's on the same page in that room. They're not the enemy. I think people also like had a very kind of, like I said, cartoonish notion of who you guys uh, are and the people in other bands. I mean, I've met people on you know all your kind of peer bands over the years many times every single person i've met in one of those bands was super super nice in person the most friendly like chill people you could imagine and i was surprised by that because you know i had heard you know all the rumors and everyone said oh you know everyone in madball or scarhead or whoever is like this horrible person yeah yeah what i realized is it is the opposite it was the people in all these like kind of uptight emo bands and stuff that were the biggest assholes yeah and the people who were the supposed you know thugs were actually really i mean i'm sure you know i'm sure nobody's perfect you maybe done some things that you're not super proud of but like on a personal level super nice people yeah you know again you know our aggressions came from who we were those other guys that were the assholes, they they used popularity and that fed them to yes. become assholes. That brought out the real people they wish they were and now they yes. have a chance to be that person. And you saw the assholes. That's the one thing nobody could ever say about us, no matter who it is, is once you know us that we're assholes, because we're not. We right. were good dudes. We did 
we were good dudes that did bad things at times, but we were always good guys because we came from nothing. We know what it is to have nothing. And it ain't just, oh, you got to be from nothing to be a good guy. It's not even that. But we learned those early values from the AF guys when, when nobody was giving bands a chance or people like us a chance because the way we look, you know, we know what it felt to be pushed aside. Yeah. The last thing we want to do is push aside the people that are coming there for us. That's why that rock star shit, anybody out there ever call it a rock star, you're going to get punched in the face. <laughs> Because that's one thing we do not back. We want no part of the word, whatever people think it is. We are none of that. We are dudes that play in a band, and we're lucky that we have people that love our band, and we love what we do. We are hardcore kids that represent an underground movement. As for that rock star shit, we have nothing to do with that. You know, never. Well, I will say that, you know, Although the kind of, I don't know, tough guy element, I'll say, you know, was not always positive. There were some parts of it that I think I did appreciate. I won't say who it was because I wouldn't want anybody to think this person is an asshole. But I remember at a show, you know, back in the day, like some kid was yelling at this guy, telling me he was an asshole and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's just kind of listening like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. And you can tell he's kind of done with it. He's like, well, if you don't like it, why don't you fight me? The kid's just like, well, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it becomes that. And I appreciate that just kind of like there's a, a group of people who need to understand. And I was one of those people when I was younger. I remember like going to the arcade and talking all this shit to this kid once. And he's like, dude, if you keep talking to me, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face. And I was like, whatever. And I said something and all of a sudden, wham, hit me in the yeah. face. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you can't just run your mouth forever. Eventually you're going to meet reality. People who needed to learn that. Yeah, you know what it is? Um, consequences. Yes. You know, um, I tell people that, I go, I think everybody should be punched in the face once in their life. Yeah. Just to, so you could see that's very small of what could happen to you in real life. And not just with a hardcore kid, metal kid, with sure. anybody, a stranger, let's just say a stranger, that you know what you say might bring back something that might be times 10 on of what you did. If you feel it's right or wrong, this is a reality. And then you feel that and you say, you know what? I don't like how that feels. <laughs> I felt so stupid. And my opinion wasn't that important to feel this. Right, right. And that already changes your way of, if I'm going to open my mouth, okay, I'm going to say it and I'm going to yep. be like this because I'm willing to do this yep. for what I'm saying. Now it makes it more important on whatever you're going to be fighting for. And that's what happened with us also. You know, we, we, we started... Um, picking our fights better. Yeah. What would you say, like, from your perspective, like, as somebody who has, you know, literally lived in hardcore, you know, pretty much, I guess, your whole adult life, yeah. what would you say is, like, the biggest change you've seen over the past, like, 15 years or so? Well, besides how we get music, yeah. you know, from streaming and all that, and I think we are losing something in these later years with people forgetting where the roots of the music come from. You know, when that was a main element of being a hardcore kid was you don't got to love all the old bands, but you got to know where the roots are of that tree. You know, I'm not one of these purists in the way where like, you know, you got to sound like victim and pain to be a yeah. hardcore band. Not that, but you should know if if Jeff, Jeff Hanneman, rest in peace, if he could tell you who Agnostic Front is, some new metal kid better tell you who Agnostic Front is. You know what I mean? I just think we're a scene already that doesn't get a lot of love from the mainstream. And 
Now it's easy. You go online, you could get all your information easy. And people are over skipping these older bands and going right to what the new hot group is, which right. is fine. But you should take that, those levels, take those steps up because you will find stuff you like or not like, or you will find out the roots of your favorite new band. You're going to be able to trace, oh, I get it. I get it. Oh, okay. Now I appreciate that because of this. That was like half the fun to me when I was a kid. I remember it took me like two years to get the Dark Side NYC record. Yeah. This was hard to find. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you found it, it was like treasured. You treasured yeah. it. You heard it. You know, I remember getting Born Expired the minute it dropped. You know, it took a couple of years before it came out. And me and my boy, we literally, it was $7 and change. I had five, he had two and a half. <laughs> we were like, we chipped in and we were like, okay, I'm going to get it Monday through Friday and I'm going to give it you on the weekend. And you made sure you, you'll bring that record, bring that record. And it just seemed, um, being a hardcore kid was like having a, spe a, a superpower. Right. You know, like being an X-Men. You know what I mean? Like the average person don't know, but we know. It's interesting to me that um, now there's kind of, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing necessarily, it's just different. There's kind of an expectation now that hardcore has rules, I guess, and that people are going to be, I don't know if nice is the word necessarily. I think it's probably a good thing overall because I want people to be safe. I don't want anybody to, you know, feel bad or anything. But it's interesting that people feel like almost like angry and upset when somebody in a hardcore band isn't like a chill, nice person. I'm kind of like, well, what do you expect? I mean, nobody got into the shit because they're like normal. Exactly. They're not being informed on how, you know, it works. You have to have people schooling the next generation, right? And they are people schooling the next generation, but the next generation doesn't need the OGs no more because they go on YouTube and can sure. overskip yeah. the bullshit. Like when I heard, I heard about people talking about having like you know uh, uh like pit police right and stuff right. like that and i'm like yes the pit could be dangerous yes things could happen you know what you do if it's dangerous you don't go in if you don't feel you're ready for it the same yeah. thing that you wouldn't join a football team unless you're worried about getting hit you know what i mean you play flag first if you want to get a feel for it same thing like the pit when i would go see vod in 1997 i didn't want any part of that exactly you know and you <laughs> How would you do it? You take your steps, you go to the edge of the pit, yeah. and then the next day you do that, and then you work your way up, and you, it's either for you or it's not for you. But there's a place for both people in the, in the, in the scene. I think um, people are forgetting that, you know, this music comes out of anger. Yeah. About being frust frustrated. Which isn't, that doesn't mean anything you do is okay, and I don't want anybody to take it that way. But if you take that out of it, then what is it really? Exactly. You know, it's an emotion. It's an emotion we all have. If you like it or not, everybody gets happy, everybody gets mad, everybody gets nervous. You cannot. Now, a hardcore show is a place where that's where we go release our frustration, our anger, or, or, or our happiness. Now, remember, there's three different things there. Happiness, uh, you know, anger, whatever. So guess what? Not everybody's going to be there for the same right. reason you're right. in there. You know, and if people realize that, and again, that goes back to looking at the early stages. AF was always singing about unity. Yeah. But then you had other bands about singing about destruction. It was all a part of the, of, the, of the ingredients of the cake. And then if someone's there for a different reason than you, that doesn't mean that they're bad and you're good. Exactly. Like, you, you don't get to decide why other people are here. 
And not just because you only go to a Youth of Today show means you're a great dude. That don't mean <laughs> right. nothing either. You know, and that's what people started thinking. Like, oh, you know, um, they're not, you know, that oh, straight edge people are only good and this and that and tough guy. No, there's good and bad in everything. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just what it is. The, the words people say in a song do not reflect who that person is as a human being off stage, for better or for worse. You know, exactly. You, you know, um, public enemy might say some shit towards a certain religious faction. I love PE. Doesn't mean that I believe what they believe in. You know what I mean? But it's something that I like for the other emotions you get out of it. The same thing, you know, you know, with music. Some people, I call people that are into Mabble like Mabble fam. I always say Mabble family because that's another word I don't like using is fans. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I, I can't even say it. I feel corny saying yeah. it. We love our fans. Yeah. I'm like, no, you know, they're, they're, you know, um, 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 hardcore kids, they're fanatic, you know, they're friends, they're, they're people there, because I'm that same dude. Because hardcore, the whole point of it is that you are no different than the person watching, like you are you are on equal footing as the person watching the band. You want to get up and take the mic? Okay, then get up and take it. Exactly. That's the special thing. And I never, and we always were like that. You know, we never like, does it feel good when people give you props? Absolutely. Does it feel good when people acknowledge us with the greats? Absolutely. But when you say fan or rock star, yeah. it's like, that shit is just nasty. I got a stomachache because it's so not what we are and not what we're about. We want no part of that shit. We're dudes that play in a hardcore band and we're happy that our peers respect us and love what we do and at least acknowledge, yo, these guys are repping the movement. We don't just rep Madball. We rep the movement more than anything. You know, that's maybe like the most important thing that I got out of hardcore is just the kind of belief that the people who were doing other things in the world weren't like special or different than me. And so later on in business and stuff, like I would never be afraid to like hit up the owner of a company or something, just like the same as I wouldn't be afraid to like go talk to somebody in a band. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think that, oh, well, he's he or she's the owner. Like I can't talk to them. It's like, there's just a fucking dude or girl like anyone else. Exactly. You know, the whole DIY, do it yourself because we had to live like that because nobody gave it to us. Yeah. So you know what that meant? If it meant, oh, I can't set up a meeting with a so-and-so record company, I'm going to catch him walking to the store. Right. Well, guess what? Fuck him. I'm going to make my own record company with my boys. I, You know, we go out there, we hustle. I, You know, something that I missed and I think that helped um, definitely molded me. My first band, I had a band called Demise when we were kids. I remember. I would walk up and down the line at CBGB's with my demo tape. Five songs, five, five bucks, the hardest shit out. That was my line. And you learn, you know why? No record company wanted us. No record store would buy it from us. So how am I going to get it out? I got to do it myself. So me and my boys would sit up all night, two tape recorders before school, cutting out paper that we had to get one of our moms to do Xerox copies, fold it up, you know, dub tape, and then hustle. And we learned, we loved what we were doing so much, we were willing to go on the street and peddle these things. That's the part that, you know, I don't understand now. The internet makes everything so easy that there's people who are, who are like afraid to even start a YouTube channel. I'm like, dude, it's so much easier. Like it costs you nothing. All you have to do is talk to your phone. What is holding you back from doing this thing? And I guess that's just a difference in like, you know, mentality of, you know, people who grew up that way. And I also think you get to see who really wants it. Yeah, that's true. Because 
you know, you see when you really want it, you're going to do whatever it takes to, to, to go for it. Right. And the early days, it was just you got to weed those people out quicker because there was no options. You know, it, you know, like we said back then, there'll be an article in a metal magazine this big. <laughs> right. you know, and we were like psyched that yeah. would get passed around for months. Metal Maniacs wrote two words about us. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be like, you kidding me? Or an AF article, Cro-Mag article this big, and that shows yeah. like a Bible. You know, we were like, yo, they talking right. about a hardcore band. You know, and it was like, and I think people lost that or just don't have it because of, you know, just how technology yeah. and whatever it is. You know, and I don't hate it on technology either. They want to get put on. Exactly. When, no, this is the movement where you put yourself on. Yeah. And if you're lucky, somebody will help you get to another level, being a label, a magazine. And if they don't, fuck them. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's the working man scene. You know yeah. what I mean? Working man, working woman, however you want to call it. It's the, the people that I always say, in the tr we're in the trenches and still in the trenches and been in the trenches. Because nobody gave a shit. Nobody. That's one thing I also say proudly. Nobody gave Madball shit. Because when we came out, we were on the biggest metal label at the That's time. Right. Where every big metal band... Which was not cool back then. Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not hating on these bands because they, you know, bands had wanted Freddie on their record. Freddie was on a Fear Factor record. And, you know, Machine Head guys would bring guys out on stage like Matty Henderson to play, all that. But... I could tell you right now, ask me which one of those bands took Mabel on tour. None of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a fact. Yep. When we went on at shows, it was cool to have us on stage. It was cool to shout us out in New York. It was cool to give cred, but nobody gave a shit. We also wouldn't kiss nobody's ass for it. We said, you know what? You want to take us on tour? We'd love to tour with you. That's where the convo ended. Now it's on your ballpark, yep. on your ballpark. And, um, Nobody did that for us. We didn't hate. You know what we did? We kept grinding. In the early days, we would do full American tours with local bands every night because nobody would take us out on tour, one. And number two, th that was the only way we would be able to tour. So we would play with like corn cover bands every night for six <laughs> weeks in America, which no band would do that now. Right, right. Yeah, they would just stay home. They'd be like, oh, well, that, that sucks. I don't want to do that. Yeah. It was the only way we were able to tour and we built ourselves from nothing, you know, we're just, obviously we had a, a little bit of a history because former guys of agnostic front, but it was also a double-edged sword. People back then didn't even call us mad boy. But not that many people outside New York really cared about that. Exactly. And you know what people used to say in the early days? Oh, that's baby AF. Yeah. Oh, you mean Rogers little brothers band? Right. That's what we were known as, Roger's Little Brother Band. That, believe right. me, we didn't want to be known as that either. You know what I mean? And it took years of people, us just doing what we do, no matter what, grinding, grinding, and then we made our own name for it. And that's the thing I'm, I'm proudest about the band, that um, we stuck to our guns. You know, people respect us for what we've done. And I'm glad to be, like I said, one of those bricks in the house of this hardcore shit. You know, like, I'm proud of that shit to be just in the same breath as the AFs, the Cro-Mags, the sick of it alls, the fucking whoever. When people even mention our names and I'm not like, are you serious? Even in, to this day, I'm like, I used to sneak into those shows. Now they're talking about us the same way they do those bands. That's a good feeling for us. You know what I mean? 
Well, that sounds like a pretty good place to leave it to me. Appreciate your time. Make sure to check out uh, your podcast, the Smoking Word Podcast. You can check that out at soundtalentmedia.com. We're part of the same podcast network now, which I'm very yep, happy yep. about. So check that out. Uh, anything else you want to plug before I let you go? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I got to get you on, on the Smoking Word Podcast. Anytime. Sure I'm going to do that soon. And um, casadarock.com, I, I do merch. I do everything in-house. Like we were talking about every all the ideas. It comes from your boy just trying to keep, you know, um, busy, trying to stay creative, you know, look, and we're working on a new Madball album, COVID or not, 2021, we're dropping our 10th Madball album. So look out for that. And um, that's it, man. Just, you know, everybody keep supporting all these local bands, these small bands, all these podcasts, all these web pages, all these YouTube channels. I've been saying it regularly. I love Metallica, but Metallica's rich. <laughs> They're good. Support the underground. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. Be safe, bro. All right. Let's get into some Q&A. From Doug Black Jr., how do you build an audience? I feel like your channel grew fast, and I'm always curious how one grows a tribe like this. Well, I cheated a little bit because uh, I have been making content like this for a long time. You know, I had a blog for a few years that was pretty popular. I wrote for some sites like Metal Sucks and Metal Injection. Uh, among others, I wrote for like Terrorizer and Substream. And so I already kind of had a sense of what people respond to when you're talking about music. So I kind of already knew that. There were no surprises there. But, you know, that's just me. In general, for someone else, uh, so I sort of knew like, hey, if I talk about music in this way, people are going to respond. But let's say you don't know that. Let's say that you're starting a channel or a podcast or whatever. What you need to look for is three things. One, is there an existing large group of people on the internet who care about this thing? For example, cars. Yes, there is a large group of people on the internet who care about cars. On the other hand, let's say spoon collecting. No, there is not a large community of people on the internet interested in that, unless I'm mistaken, and <laughs> I certainly could be. So number one, is there like a group of people who are already interested in this? Two, is it something that you can talk about uh, with either authority or in an entertaining way? And three, is it something that you are actually passionate about? And if the answer to all of those things is yes, uh, then the question is just like, how do you get your work in front of those people? And that comes down to you know, really the specifics of the platform. So YouTube is very good for discovery. If you get plugged into the recommendation engine, like you've probably all seen one of those videos that just won't get out of your recommended. Like you're like, what the fuck? Okay, YouTube, fine, I'll watch this. It's been on my recommended for two weeks. So YouTube does a great job of that. On the other hand, podcasts don't. I mean, there's no real great discovery mechanism for podcasts like there is for YouTube videos. So if you want to grow a podcast, it's going to be a little bit different and more difficult, which is the reason why I think most people should focus on uh, something where there is a growth vector built in. For example, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, both are all three have like uh, some kind of growth engine built in. And that largely, I think, is just about participating in the conversation and talking about the things people want to talk about. Uh, what I would do if I was starting out is is focus on sort of sort of currently trending topic in the beginning. I, you don't ha even if you don't intend on doing, you know, timely stuff in the future, but if for example, if you uh, want to talk about, you know, cars and 
some car company just announced a new model and it's very controversial and some people like it and some people don't, I would make a video or a TikTok about that. And then hopefully that will sort of catch the wave of the people talking about this. And that's going to be the thing that kind of gets you your initial audience. So there's no one answer to exactly how to do this. But I think if you answer those first three questions, uh, the if the answer to all of those is yes, then it's just a matter of putting in the work and eventually it'll happen. From Liam Early, what's your dream job and what are your thoughts on Stuck Mojo? Well, I am going to uh, pass on the Stuck Mojo part because I haven't listened to them since about 1996. <laughs> what's your dream job? Well, I mean, honestly, I, I have no complaints about what I do now. It's pretty great. It's really all I ever wanted was just to be able to kind of... Um, you know, make stuff and make a decent living off of that. And, you know, I mean, I make stupid videos about uh, butt rock and metalcore and stuff. And, uh, you know, in addition to some of the other things that I do, for example, URM Academy, uh, which is an online education company that I'm a partner in, I have nothing to complain about. But I would say something for people to consider in regards to what your dream job is, is it it matters, I think, a lot less what you do than who you do it with. For example, let's say you're a graphic designer and you love skateboarding and you think that your dream job might be uh, doing graphics or skateboards or a skate skateboard company, but then you get a job at the company and everyone there, like, and the boss is cr a crazy asshole. You're not going to enjoy it. Even though the work is itself like something that you think you would enjoy, it's not going to be fun if the people suck. On the other hand, you might find yourself enjoying work that you kind of didn't think you were interested in because the people are cool. For example, when I was working on Procter & Gamble stuff, doing product design years ago, um, I did a bunch of stuff for like Swiffer and Febreze and Bounce and some other like consumer products brands that they do. I don't care at all about those products or those categories. Like I'm not interested. I'm not passionate about laundry or hard surface care or any of that stuff. But I ended up really enjoying that work because the people involved were really cool. So we, I worked for an agency and everyone in the agency was awesome. Like a lot of those people are still my friends to this day. Uh, so it was cool to be able to just work with smart, inspiring people doing cool shit, like doing our best to do cool shit within the constraints of what we had. And then the people at Procter & Gamble were also awesome. Like they were some of the smartest fucking people I've ever met, you know, uh, at the core, it's kind of a chemical engineering company paired with a marketing company. And I like engineers and I like marketing. So I really enjoyed that. You know, I got a chance to see how a company, you know, back then, um, I think Febreze had just broken a billion dollars a year in sales. I'm sure it's like several times higher than that now. So that was my first chance to see like how a billion dollar company thinks about these things. And even though I don't give the slightest fuck about Febreze itself, the scale of the problems and the people involved made it super interesting. So that's maybe just something to think about as you're considering what your uh, dream job might be. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you wanna help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. 
Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello out there! Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!